But when it comes to politics, we're pretty obsessed with powerful people, aren't we? Yeah, you, I think you'd agree with that. We seek to identify with polit- political parties, elections, governments. We try to identify these with one person often, right? Even though this is an inaccurate way to view things most of the time. I mean, in Canada, who actually makes the laws here in Canada? Parliament does, right? Okay, now who actually runs the country? Parliament. However, if we think of the government right now, who do we think of? Stephen Harper, <laughs> right? We don't think of Parliament. We think of Stephen Harper. We think of the Prime Minister. If I ask you who won the election earlier this year, what would you say? <laughs> Probably something to the effect of Stephen Harper's conservative government or even just Stephen Harper <laughs> won the election. Everyone is either happy with Harper or they hate his gut. <laughs> it seems that way, at least. If we think the government is succeeding and doing well, we see Stephen Harper as being a good prime minister. However, if the government seems to be failing in our eyes or not doing a good job, who takes the fall? The prime minister. If I told you I voted for a certain party in the last election, which I won't do, but say someone came up to you and said, I voted NDP last election, who would you think of? You'd immediately think of the late Jack Layton, correct? Or if I said I voted conservative, you'd think of Stephen Harper, or or on and on. You could do the same. You could do the exact same thing in the states as well. I mean, most of you could tell me today who the president of the United States is, right? Barack Obama. Okay, but the president of the United States, the same way, it only holds a bit of the power in the government. Congress holds a lot of power. Supreme Court holds a lot of power. Um, and so it's balanced out that way. But how many judges or congressmen or senators could you name? Not many or none, right? Growing up in the States, I had to memorize the presidents from Washington to Bush at that time. I had to like name them one after the other. But I did not have to memorize congressmen or Supreme Court justices. I didn't have to do that. But the point is, with this whole spiel, that we like electing, we like following, and we like remembering powerful people. We do. We like to identify with these people. Now, in politics, this is how we think, whether or not it's the most correct way to think. But in our, in our faith, when it comes to our faith, I think this is similar to how we need to be known. We need to be known this way. In politics, we're identified with the most powerful people, right or not. But in our faith, we should be identified with the one with the most power. And that's not really a person, is it? That's God. We're, we are supposed to be identified with the most powerful person. We should be identified because, with who we follow, with who we worship. Last week, we began a series on what it means to be someone who stands out in our world. And in a world full of compromise, of conforming, of fitting in, of how we as Christians are supposed to be different. We're supposed to be uncompromising, unconforming, and to stand out in our world. We're in the Old Testament book of Daniel for this series, which is full of some very well-known stories and lesser-known stories. All of them, I think, are fascinating. But I believe that these accounts that we read can, be, can make a huge impact on the way we live today in our present world. It's crucially important that we do stand out 
in our world. But I think that we need to make sure we're standing out for the right reasons. And the most important reason I could ever come up with, and that God comes up with, is who we stand for. Most important reason we need to stand out is who we stand for. I ended last week saying that we should be known more for what we stand for than what we stand against. And the chief thing that we should be for as Christians is the glory of God. That's what we need to stand up for, most importantly. The story that we're in today is going to try to show us this God whom we're to stand out for. And so if you have a Bible and you haven't turned there yet, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, but before we begin reading, I want to pray for us, okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the beautiful weather that you've given us uh, to come together and uh, worship you together, learn more about you, grow more like you. We pray that you would help us do that today, that you would be moving in our hearts through your spirit. You'd be convicting us, changing us, and growing us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, let's set the stage a bit, shall we? Last week, if you were here last week, you remember the story. We were introduced to Daniel and his three friends, all of whom were likely teenagers at this time. And these teenage boys had been carried off from their homeland of Judah and exiled in the land of Babylon, where they were chosen as some of the sharpest young minds in the empire and placed into a mandatory training program, or we call it a lot of brainwashing was going on in this program. It was designed to make them Babylonians, to make them government workers for the nation of Babylon. And as he read chapter 1, we read about a time that during this training, Daniel and his friends had to stand up for their convictions, for what they believed was right and what they believed was wrong. And they put themselves to a test to see if God's ways or if man's ways were better. And you can read the story for yourself. Um, we, we talked all about it last week. But God's ways prevailed. Okay, So God's ways prevailed. Daniel and his friends were not only rewarded, but God made them place at the very top of their class. We read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. It says, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. These guys really started succeeding because God rewarded them. Well, this brings us to the beginning of chapter 2, which is a story in and of itself. It's a standalone story. And this story likely happened either during, either during Daniel's trainings or immediately following. So he was still a very young man, somewhere between 16 and 20 years old. Okay, So a lot of you are that age. You can identify with this. A lot of us... The rest of us have been there before, so we can identify with it as well. Chapter 2 is quite long, so we've got a fair amount to read today. So we're just going to jump right in, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Have you ever had a dream 
that really troubled you when you woke up? I know many of us have. Maybe a terrifying nightmare or just a weird one that played tricks with our minds. Probably one of the dreams that most troubled me that I can remember happened when I was, when I was in junior high. And as I woke up in the morning, I didn't tell anyone what had happened, but man, it, it bugged me. It bothered me. And it was very vivid. It bothered me for, probably for about a week. But looking back, it's just so funny that I would have been bothered for something this trivial. I don't remember all the details of the dream now. But the gist of it was that the girl that I had a major crush on in junior high not only started dating one of my best friends, but ended up marrying him in junior high. <laughs> and I woke up and I was pretty shell-shocked. I'm like could something like this actually happen? <laughs> it bugged me. And looking back, like I said, it's just, it's just silly that I was bothered by something like that. But dreams can be bothersome, and they can be much more bothersome than that. But I doubt that any of our dreams created quite the effect as Nebuchadnezzar's dream did here. The dream was so vivid, so troubling, that he couldn't sleep at all. He did not want to go back to sleep, and he knew there had to be some meaning behind it. It was such a troubling dream that he figured there had to be a meaning. So he asked his wise men and his sorcerers, astrologers, all the, his advisors to come and interpret the dream for him. But as we read on, we're going to see the king had much more in mind than simple interpretation. He, didn't, he wanted more than just the dream to be interpreted. Let's continue reading. Verse 3 again. He said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And so Nebuchadnezzar basically wanted them to read his mind, right? He didn't want just an interpretation. He wanted them to tell what the dream was in the first place. In verse 7, it says, Once more they replied, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time, because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. We might ask, well, why was Nebuchadnezzar so unreasonable here? Why would he want... Both of these things. Well, he was asking for a supernatural interpretation of the dream. Okay, He wanted them to interpret what it meant, but he was suspicious of their motives in doing this. Because if they just came up with an interpretation off the top of their heads in order to avoid this death sentence he had put over their heads, he didn't want that. He wanted to know the real meaning behind the dream. And so he wanted to see, he was basically putting them to the test. If you can actually do this, if you can interpret my dream and you can do the supernatural, you will tell me what the dream was first. Okay? So he was testing them. Verse 9 says, If you do not tell me the dream, there is just one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. 
No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. And it says, this made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. <laughs> so that's the situation in Babylon. Okay, that's, that's the stage. Where does Daniel come into the story? Well, Daniel and his three friends were considered some of the wise men of Babylon. Yes, they were young, but this is what we read. They were already considered highly esteemed, respected advisors to the king. And so when the king said he ordered the execution of all the wise men, he basically signed their death sentence. And we continue reading in verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, Why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. So where the wise men failed here, Daniel believed he could succeed which would, in turn, save the lives of himself and his friends and his co-workers around him. I think there's a definite contrast here between Daniel and what he was able to do and the king's advisors. However, there's a much greater contrast intended in these verses. And really, this greater contrast is the point of the entire chapter at all. Once we get into the details, as we read this chapter, we'll get into the details of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And as people read this, often they'll be distracted by the dream. They'll think that the dream is the point of the passage. After all, the plot revolves around the dream, right? But some of your headings in your Bibles may even say the king's dream or something to that effect. But this would be wrong because that is not the focus of this chapter. The focus of the chapter is on Daniel's God and how Daniel's God is so much greater and powerful and wiser than anything else in the world. W. Lee Humphrey says this. It says, The rivals are, on the surface of it, Daniel and the king's advisors. But more profoundly, the contest is between the true God and the idols that the king's advisors worship. That's the underlying contrast here between the true God and the Babylonian gods and their powers. This chapter really shows how God's ways, again, stand out from man's ways. And how God's people, in the form of Daniel here, stand out from the world's people. And how God, as God, stands out from everything and everyone else. And you know what's amazing? We worship the same God as Daniel worshipped. We worship the same God. So everything that we learn about Daniel's God in this passage, we learn about our God. And I think this is really important, that as we talk about how we need to stand out in the world, we need to remember, remember, first of all, that our God 
stands out. Our God stands out. And if we follow and worship a God who stands out, we need to stand out as well. The first thing we're going to learn from this story is this, that our God stands out as wise and powerful. Our God stands out from all around him because he is wise and powerful, as all wise and all powerful. We'll see this as we continue the story, as Daniel comes up with the solution to his problem. Except that really, Daniel didn't come up with the solution. God did. Let's continue reading from verse 16. It says, At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So what was the first thing that Daniel and his friends did when they were faced with this impossible situation? They prayed. You see that? They prayed. They realized that they were helpless in this situation, that they were powerless. And so they went to the only one who could truly help them. And God answered their prayer. He revealed the dream to Daniel. As it says in 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. What would happen if we, every time we were faced with a daunting situation in our lives, we first went to God in prayer? What would happen? Often, I think we try to solve things on our own. We try to fix things. We try to make them better. And then if things don't seem like they're working out for us, we run to God. Right? But what could God do through us just because we realized our need for him? We realized our need for him. I think that we have a lot more impossible situations in our lives than we might think about. If there... Maybe there's someone in your life that you've been trying to witness to or share the gospel with or try to get them to become a Christian. Did you realize that that's impossible for you to do on your own? That's impossible. If you're striving to be holy in your life, to be sanctified, to try to keep fighting sins in your life, Have you realized that that's an impossible fight for you to win? It's not possible on your own. We we see this city around us, and we see its great need for Jesus, and we wonder, how in the world could we ever reach people? 
I mean, we're so limited, we're so few, and the need is so great, it seems impossible. Or even bigger in, in our world, we see uh, some huge need, the famine in Africa, or uh, humanitarian need that we just can't reach, we can't fix. And we wonder, how could we ever show God's love in this situation? How could we even be a drop in the bucket? Seems impossible. We wonder what to do in these situations. We, we're clueless. We're helpless. We're powerless. I think we need to come to the realization that we are. We don't just feel this way. We are helpless. And we are ignorant. We are weak. But our God is all-wise. And he is all-powerful. You see that in these verses? When Daniel prays, he says in verse 20, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. He just said, we're, we're stupid on our own. We're powerless. We're weak. But God, he owns wisdom. He owns power. He is Wisdom and power. Where the Babylonian magicians and enchanters and all these other wise men failed, God succeeded. He was greater than all the other gods that were inquired of. All the other methods that were used. Every time that we pray, we are asking God to do the supernatural. Did you know that? Every time we pray, we're asking God to reach into our lives, supernaturally, into our world. Does that mean that God will answer us in supernatural ways? Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Maybe not as dramatically supernaturally as Daniel was answered here, but supernatural nonetheless. And I think that what the most incredible part of this story of his prayer being answered is the way that God chose to answer his prayer. He chose to answer Daniel's prayer by filling up Daniel himself. In verse 23, Daniel says, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. God was the one who gave it to him. But he was able to do that. He filled up Daniel with wisdom and power. Did you know that God can use you sometimes as an answer to your prayers? He can use you. He can fill you with power. That's how powerful he is. He can turn the powerless into powerful. And he can turn the stupid, the ignorant, the clueless into the wise. He can use me. He can use you. So do you want to stand out in our world as wise or powerful in any way? Then get on your knees. Get on your knees and start asking God to work his wisdom and his power through you. We can be wise and powerful in our world only because we worship a God who is the definition of these things. And as we look into Scripture, you know how God most clearly displayed his wisdom and power? Through Jesus Christ. 
In 1 Corinthians 1, it says this, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. I think this truth is so dramatically displayed in Daniel's story. That the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Well, let's continue on in Daniel 1 and see how God's power and God's wisdom were displayed through Daniel. Okay, so he filled them up. And then in verse 24, it says this, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what my dream, what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, similar to what the people replied earlier, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But this is where it differs. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living, man, other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. And then Daniel is going to go on here to tell the king his dream and interpret it. But I think we learned something from this part of the story first. We learned another amazing fact about our God and how our God stands out compared to anyone or anything else. And that is this, that our God stands out as a revealer of mysteries. Our God reveals mysteries to mankind about himself and about his plan in the world. Our God stands out in this way as a revealer of mysteries. This is what God did for Daniel in this passage. Back in verse 19, it says, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then in verse 22, Daniel praised God for this in his prayer. It says, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And then when Daniel goes before the king, this is what he reports to King Nebuchadnezzar. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. God revealed here both the contents and the meaning of the king's dream to Daniel. You might ask, well, does God still speak to man in this way today through dreams like this? I'd answer yes, he certainly can, and he certainly does at certain times. However, it's a special occasion when he does. We aren't to expect this in our life. Even in the Bible, communicating through dreams wasn't the norm. 
It was the exception. They happened on occasion, sometimes centuries apart. And there was someone to interpret the dream to people. Much more often, God clearly reveals himself in many other ways. Through creation, through our consciences, through the prophets, through scriptures, and then through Jesus Christ as the greatest revelation. Through all these ways, Daniel's words hold true, that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He reveals mysteries. Knowing the contents of someone else's dream is knowing quite the mystery. And then knowing exactly what the dream means is even more so. Can you imagine if I came into you today and asked, what did my dream last night mean? Where would you even start? That would be a huge mystery. It would be impossible. And then I had, I'm not going to tell you what the dream was first. It's just ridiculous. That's an impossible mystery to solve without more information. But it wasn't impossible for our powerful and wise God. Not in the least. We all love mysteries. But can you imagine if the mysteries that we love were never solved? What if we were watching CSI on TV? Okay? And we watched for an hour as these teams of forensic detectives worked hard to solve an intricate murder mystery of how someone died and who to pin the blame on. And so they worked hard and they deciphered clues and figured out puzzles. But then at the end of the episode, they all just gave up and said, okay, well, I guess that mystery is unsolvable. We'd feel gypped, right? We just wasted an hour of our lives. We don't even get to know what it means. And it's... We feel the need to know. It would be very frustrating to not know how it's solved. But we can feel comfort here in the fact that our God doesn't leave us in the dark. He reveals mysteries. He solves them. He illuminates the truth for us to see. And we're talking mysteries way bigger than you'll ever see on a TV show. Way bigger. In this story... I think we see God really revealed mysteries on two levels. He first revealed to Daniel the mystery of the dream itself. But he was also revealing a mystery to Nebuchadnezzar through the dream. He was revealing something to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Daniel said. He says, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Verse 28, he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. So he he gave him a mystery. He was revealing something through this. Let's get into the dream itself. Verse 29. It says, As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than the other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, that you may understand what went through your mind. Here's the dream. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous Dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold 
were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Weird dream, eh? (laughs) Pretty bizarre. Well, we're going to see how Daniel interpreted this dream in a minute. But the main message of this dream that was communicated to Nebuchadnezzar is actually still the exact same message communicated to us today. I believe that it's this, that our God, we we see another thing about our God here, our God stands out as the sovereign king. Our God is sovereign over the affairs of men, and he is the king of all kings. Our God stands out as the sovereign king. As we just read, this dream is quite bizarre. I don't know about you, but I've never dreamed about a ginormous, multi-metal statue. (laughs) It's just weird. But Daniel makes it clear that this dream represents something. It represents something that will happen in the future. So what is this dream talking about? What What do these things represent? Well, there are two main ideas about what this statue represented. However, I have to be careful here. If I go into too much detail, we'll do what so many people have done before and miss the whole point of the dream and what it means. So instead of doing that, I'm just going to summarize it for you, okay? Summarize you some things about the dream. But first, let's read Daniel's explanation, and then we'll go from there. In verse 36, Daniel says this, This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left up to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. So Daniel explains here that the different sections of the statue represent different empires. That the gold head, the most dazzling part of the statue, represented Nebuchadnezzar, or more likely the whole Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 38 it says, You are that head of gold. The the king must have been pretty happy with that. I'm the head of gold. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) But then Daniel says another kingdom is going to follow. 
One will rise up that's inferior, represented by silver. It says, 39, after you another king will rise inferior to yours. And then it continues, neck, or sorry, let's go back there. <laughs> this kingdom is believed, this is the most common interpretation of this dream. It's believed that the this empire represents the Medo-Persian empire, which followed the Babylonian empire. And then a third kingdom rises up. It says a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. The empire that followed Persia was the empire of Greece that ruled over the whole earth, led by Alexander the Great and his military force. Finally, we see a fourth empire rise up, strong as iron, but it will have inherent weaknesses, which will eventually cause the empire to fall. Saw that in verses 40 to 43. You know which kingdom this likely represents? Rome. In all its glory. (laughs) Strong on one level, weak on another. Strong as iron for many years, but was eventually overthrown. Rome did not last forever. Now here's the problem as we talk about these different empires. Most people focus on these verses. They focus on the statue and think that God was just giving Nebuchadnezzar a bit of a history lesson of the future. Right? But what happened to the statue in the dream? It was utterly destroyed. Read back in the dream in verse 34. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. See, all these empires, they came and they went. No matter how dominant, no matter how powerful, no matter how universal they were, they came and they went. It really shows the frailty of human power here. But here's the thing. As Daniel continues to interpret the rest of the dream, we see that really the point of the dream wasn't the statue. The point of the dream was the mountain. You understand that? Read with me in verse 44. As Daniel interprets it, he says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. Man's kingdoms are weak and they come to nothing. But this is in light of God's kingdom. Did you see that? They fall in light of God's kingdom that he will establish in verse 44. It says, in the time of those kings. That's the main message that God wants to communicate through this dream. That God's kingdom is coming. And it will be established forever. That's the message of the dream. Daniel doesn't even call the dream the dream of the statue and the rock. What does he call it? In verse 45, this is the meaning of the vision of 
the rock cut out of the mountain. That's what the dream's about. Here, our God clearly stands out as sovereign, in complete control of the world's history and events. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but our God stands forever and is in control. He is in just as much control today as he was in Daniel's day. So he stands out as sovereign, and he stands out here as a king of a kingdom. Even in light of King Nebuchadnezzar, who is currently the king of all kings on earth in this time, that's going to pass away, and God's reign will continue. He's the king of an eternal kingdom, which was to be established during the times that Daniel explained in his dream. Let me ask you, when was God's kingdom established? Here's a better question. Who established God's kingdom? Jesus did. Jesus did. On this side of Christ, we can see this dream came true. It happened. It says, in the time of those kings, during these empires. When did Jesus come? In the height of Rome's power. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The kingdom Jesus established can never be destroyed. It can never be left for another kingdom to conquer or to put into exile. It will endure forever. You ask, well, how could a kingdom do something like this? How could this kingdom be different than all these others? Well, it's a different type of kingdom. It's an invisible kingdom. It's not a political or geographical kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom made up of people from all around the world. That's Jesus' kingdom. Members of Jesus' kingdom are those who have trusted in Christ alone to save them. No matter what the world does to attack or to destroy or minimize his kingdom, it still stands to this day. If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, did you know that you're part of his kingdom? This may be a foreign concept to some of you here. You may think, what are you talking about, God's kingdom? What are you talking about, this trusting or believing in Jesus? Well, when Jesus came to earth and established God's kingdom, he established this truth, that we are all guilty before God. We are sinners in his sight. We have all done wrong in his eyes. And we can't free ourselves from this influence, from this corruption, or from the punishment for sin. But God, in his wisdom and in his power, provided a way for us to be saved from our sins. He sent his only son Jesus to earth as God in human flesh to pay our punishment sin. He took 
our sins on his back. And he died for them. He took the punishment. He died on the cross to save us. And then he rose again to give us new life in his kingdom. Have you become part of this kingdom that will never fall? Have you done that before? All you have to do is turn away from your sins that are between you and God. Turn away from them and trust in Jesus alone to save you from them. Because you can't do it on your own. You're powerless to save yourself. Only Christ can save us. I'd love to talk to you more today. If you've never done this before, if you'd like to know more information, do not put this off. It's eternally important. So what does this all mean for the rest of us? What does this mean for us? Well, as we see how sovereign our God is, how he rules his eternal kingdom, it gives us great reason to keep trusting in him. As we seek to stand out for him. Listen, Canada Canada will fall one day. You know that? Western culture, Western civilization, all of the civilizations on earth, they will fall. But God's kingdom will stand. Let's stand for the right thing. For the right cause. For his kingdom. I believe there's one other clear application for us from this passage, though, based on how Daniel responded to all of this, as he sought to stand out for our God before the king. And that is this, that we should stand out in our world in order to bring praise to our God. Our God stands out in so many ways, and we need to stand out for him and for his glory and for his praise. We should stand out in our world in order to bring praise to our God. This is what Daniel does several times in the story. I mean, right after Daniel, when God revealed the dream to Daniel, he broke out into praise. And we read that prayer from 19 to 23. He's like, I praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And in verse 23, I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what was we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. And then as he stood before the king... He deflected the praise to God. He wasn't taking credit for himself. He said, no wise man, enchanter, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he asked about, including myself. That's what he's saying. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He's deflecting the praise to God. After he interprets the dream, look how the dream resulted. Verse 46 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. 
So while the king bowed down to Daniel, the king wasn't worshiping Daniel. He was worshiping Daniel's God. He's surely your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. How Daniel stood up, it revealed to the king how great his God was, how worthy of praise his God was. And to finish off this chapter, just in the same way as we saw in chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends stood out, God once again used the king to reward them for their faithfulness to them. In verse 48, it says, Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. Now, I should mention here that Nebuchadnezzar did not become a permanent worshiper of Daniel's God here. Even in the very next chapter, he erects a statue of himself to be worshipped. He saw Daniel really he saw Daniel's God as an excellent addition to his pantheon of gods. He had many gods, he had no problem adding another one. Even as the best of all his gods. But still only one of many. He was really only a temporary worshiper of Daniel's God. And I think that we need to be careful because sometimes we're the same way. We're temporary worshipers of our God. We worship easily on Sunday mornings when we come together and praise God together. Or when our life is going great. It's easy to praise Him. But when hard times hit, or even just the mundaneness of Monday mornings, we forget about worshiping God. We forget about praising Him, thanking Him, glorifying Him with our every breath, our every word, our every action. We need to learn from Daniel, who was able to direct praise and honor to God in everything he did. He always was showing, no, it's not me, look at my God. Him, not just in his songs and his prayers. When we're called to stand out in our world, we truly are doing it because our God is so great. It's entirely for him. When I was growing up, one of my favorite childhood movies was the uh, Disney baseball movie, Angels in the Outfield. And if you know me, you'll know why I liked it. It was basically, it was a fictional story of my favorite baseball team winning when they never did that in those days. So it was cheesy kid stuff, but, and it had terrible acting, but I enjoyed it growing up. But there was one scene in the movie that I was thinking about this week. At one point, the manager of the team, the head coach of the Angels, his name was George Knox, and he was about to be let go. Even though he had just led his team in one season from being terrible to the brink of winning everything. But something embarrassing had happened, and so he was being forced to either resign or be fired. And so instead of being embarrassingly fired, he was holding a press conference to resign. And at this press conference, it turned into quite the emotional scene. 
Because as he's about to resign, one of the players from the team stands up, just out of the blue, stands up in this press conference and says, there's one thing that I'm not going to do. I'm not going to play for anyone else but George Knox. I'm not going to play for anyone else. So if you sign, or if you accept his resignation, you can accept mine too. And then another player stands up. Says, that goes for me too. And pretty soon, one by one, the entire team stands up in the press conference. Basically saying, I'm only going to follow him as my coach. I'm only going to follow him. I believe in him. I believe in what he's doing. I'll follow him alone. I think that in the same way, much the same way, we're called to stand up for our leader. No, God's not about to be fired. <laughs> but we're called to stand up for him, for our God, because he is so powerful, he's so wise, he's so sovereign, he's so gracious and loving to us in every way. We need to stand up and say, you know, I'm not going to live for anyone but him. I'm not going to follow anyone but him. I'm not going to worship anyone but him. And that means we stand up for his kingdom. Stand out for his kingdom in everything, no matter what the cost, in order to bring praise to our God. And as we choose to do this, it does bring him praise. How The verse that I started this whole series with in Matthew, where Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds, and what? Praise your Father in heaven. It all supposed to lead to praise. As the song that Adrian and Grace played earlier for us, so great, it says, Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer. He's awesome in power. And then it goes on and says, and if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? If our God is with us, then what can stand against? What could ever stand against? This is the God we're called to stand up and stand out for. How great is he? Let's pray. God, you are so great, and we are so unworthy to even be called your followers. We don't deserve to be part of your kingdom, and yet you have lavished your grace and love on us through Jesus so that we can be part of your kingdom, so that we can follow you, so that we can learn to love you and praise you in everything. We thank you for revealing this to us, for showing us how we can be saved. We're so indebted to you. Help us to stand out for you in our world. Yes, in Jesus' name.